Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. I have with me Jason Cross, who was the longtime head of equities at White Box Advisors. He's had the great foresight to be a holder of Bitcoin, which obviously I've been skeptical about. So I'm going to ask him some questions and we're going to talk about crypto for a while. First of all, I think one of the things that we have agreement that the payment system should be both more secure, cheaper and easier. Right. And that I think one of the issues that can frequently get confused is currency is traditionally thought of as being both a store of value and a medium of exchange. Right. And it needs to sort of do both, but they're not wholly independent. If you're not a reliable store of value, you can't really be a medium of exchange because everybody has to be constantly checking your value and repricing it and making calculations. And if you're a great medium of exchange, that could sort of conceivably give you a stable and intrinsic value. Among holders of Bitcoin, it seems that the marketing kind of pitch is as a store of value, or more particularly that currencies won't be a store of value and Bitcoin is kind of an inverse of that. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's right? Yeah. So I think there's been an evolution of thought about what Bitcoin is, what kind of role Bitcoin would play as an asset, right? So I think early on in its history, there was this sort of idea that you know, this is the future of money. This is going to be something that's a medium of exchange as well as a store of value. I think the thinking on that is completely changed. You know, as a medium of exchange, Bitcoin is actually a horrible tool. <laughs> However, I think that it's become more apparent that it is potentially effective as essentially a digital goal as a store of value. But in terms of being something that's ever going to act as like the numeraire in an economy, it's sort of the, you know, the yardstick on which things are priced. It's really not designed to do that. And that's not the way I foresee it being used. And, you know, when you think about it, Bitcoin really hasn't changed much since it was first invented. The core code that it runs on is basically the same today as it was 10 years ago, you know, X a few upgrades here and there. But if you think about the actual network that Bitcoin runs on, it's kind of arcane. So it, for instance, it, it can't handle too many transactions per second. So if you look at the network that it runs on, it can only handle really like five transactions per second. You compare that to something like Visa, in an average second, Visa will process 1,700 transactions. <laughs> and their network can scale up to uh, 65,000 transactions per second, they claim. And then the other problem with Bitcoin is that when you have increased activity, you know, increased demands on the network, the cost of actually processing a transaction on the network goes up. So in the early days, it was pretty inexpensive. So to actually post a transaction on the blockchain used to be a matter of cents or fractions of cents. But now that Bitcoin is so valuable and you know the pipeline is very constrained, it can cost four bucks to post a transaction on that blockchain. And then we also have the problem of 
at least interacting with the first layer of the Bitcoin blockchain, it's not at all a user-friendly experience. I remember in the early days, you know, people were thinking, okay, well, we're going to have wallets on our phones and we're going to go around and scan each other's QR codes to move money back and forth with each other, to move Bitcoin back and forth with each other. But the actual process of moving Bitcoin is a little hair-raising. <laughs> you know, things can go wrong. You can transcript an address wrong and just send it off into the abyss. Will the abyss accept it? <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the abyss is actually one of the biggest holders of Bitcoin now. So there's some studies that suggest that maybe up to 20% of Bitcoin has already been lost and is essentially non-recoverable at this point. You see these news stories about the ex-CTO of Ripple. So Ripple is another crypto coin project. He was paid back in 2010, like 7,000 Bitcoins to do some PR work for another firm. And he had it stored on a digital wallet, but he couldn't remember his password. He has 10 attempts to unlock it before it's permanently encrypted. He's tried eight times and hasn't had success. That Bitcoin now is worth something like $230 million <laughs> and he can't access it. So storage is kind of nightmarish. You hear about, okay, in the long term, it's like, why should crypto be good for payments? And like, I personally believe at some point, Crypto will in some way be used for most payment systems and it'll do it much more efficiently and much more cheaply than the existing systems that we have now. But version 1.0, like Bitcoin is not the answer to this and that's not what it's going to be used for. Why is crypto though likely to evolve into something that will be used for payments and how does that work? So the first thing to realize is like the existing payment systems that we have are incredibly bad and inefficient, right? So let's just talk a little bit about the existing payment systems that we have. You know, in terms of business to consumer, we obviously have the credit cards. So Visa and MasterCard, and then you have some new players like PayPal and Venmo and things like that. Now, in terms of the customer, the consumer facing experience, these actually are perfectly fine tools. Consumers love them. You know, you get Airline points, when you use your Visa card in a lot of cases, it seems like free money. But I don't think what's apparent to the consumer, or at least most consumers, is just the outrageous margin that's being made on the backs of merchants. And when you look at what a Visa MasterCard charges a typical vendor, it can be like 3% of a transaction, right? Which is a pretty big chunk of what's going on in terms of most businesses' net margins. So, you know, these airline miles that everyone's collecting using, like they're not free. These are essentially monopolies. They have at least an oligarchy in terms of the networks that they employ. And they're collecting economic rents, essentially. And in the big picture, it's kind of a deadweight loss to society. So I have a question. Why doesn't Amazon issue an electronic gift card, which they would be prepared to redeem were very close to face at any point that anybody wanted. And they could run an encrypted network where I could move credit from my Amazon card to your Amazon card. And you could spend it on Amazon or you could tell Amazon, give me a bank deposit. Right. This is the same idea of PayPal or Venmo. And at the end of the day, these are still proprietary networks. And if you look at what PayPal charges merchants, it's not 3%, but it's 29 Right. So, well, Amazon should do it for nothing, you know, because in fact, instead of redeeming for cash, you know, it would be capturing market share. You know, they get the float and you'd spend it on Amazon. And unlike the PayPal network, you can buy more or less anything on Amazon. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the the real value is sort of building up the network and making that form of money fungible in a lot of different places. That's sort of the hard part is actually building up the network. And that's why I think Visa and MasterCard can charge so much overhead on these transactions. So like really a lot of the value is embedded in the network. But in a way, that's why I think that eventually crypto probably is going to be able to displace them. Because, well, there's a few things. One is that the whole idea about crypto is it really becomes more valuable the larger these networks become. And the single idea behind why crypto is valuable, you have to sort of think about what it does in terms of, there's a role that society plays in terms of economic transactions, in terms of arbitrating what is an objective truth, in terms of whether an economic transaction is valid or not. So if you think about how humans have dealt with this problem of transferring economic value over our entire history, that authority has always been embedded in individuals or centralized organizations, right? So, you know, we have court systems, we have companies that have the public trust and are sort of imbued with the power to custody assets and have transfers occur between people and entities, right? So, you know, the banking system. For all that to work, you just need legions and legions of people to turn those cogs. There's just a huge amount of effort and money that goes into making economic transactions in a society trustworthy, right? And, you know, the problem with human systems is that while we have laws to try to standardize and guide us towards an objective truth. At the end of the day, they're human institutions and they're subject to error and corruption and so forth. So going back to the Amazon example, Mm -hmm. in that, you know, I'm having Amazon, ultimately, they're the tracker of what my credit on their card is and what your credit on that card is. But, you know, I would certainly trust Amazon for transactional sorts of values. You know, I wouldn't worry that they're just going to wipe out my card and your card and so forth, and there's nothing I can really do about it. Right. You know, the way a company like Amazon works, though, is that it may not be apparent. They may not charge much for something like that, but there's always like cost transference, right? So maybe you don't pay as much for the actual transactions on these cards if you're a consumer, but it's always being transferred somewhere. Like, this is what PayPal and Venmo do, right? So if you're a consumer, you can send money to someone else for free, right? It doesn't charge you anything, but it's just sort of a loss leader for them to build out their network so that they have enough people on their platform. So that when it comes time to interact with merchants or vendors, that's where it gets hit. Like I can see why consumers don't get really excited about wanting to deal with cryptocurrency because at least from their point of view, the existing payment systems work great, but where it works really poorly is for vendors. I would guess that Amazon, to the extent that they would try something like that, would just do the same thing that PayPal and Venmo do, which is try to monetize it on the vendor side, right? That's where I think the weak point is where crypto is going to actually get some traction. So if you just focus on the B2B case, if you're a business, the existing payment solutions for you kind of suck. You do have B2B credit cards, but then again, you have the same issue. The entity receiving is usually paying two or 3% of the transaction. Then you have the checking system, right? And it's insane how much economic activity still goes through paper checks. I saw the stat which suggests that in the US in a given year, there's still $18 trillion of activity going through paper checks. What does it cost to process all these checks? That's estimated to be about 550 million annually. 
sort of the hidden costs of processing checks in terms of like what you need in your company, you know, how you feed it into accounting systems, what banks need to do. If you just sort of look at it at the top level, you know, it can be anywhere from four to 20 bucks a check to process. And then of course, you know, checks are just kind of anachronistic, right? Like it's all paper-based, settlement is painfully slow. You know, you can still do things like place stop payments on things. There's no guarantee that the check will clear when you receive it. Signatures can be forged, obviously. Yeah, so it's just a very old, error-prone system. But businesses are still doing it because it's better than paying these 2 or 3% fees on you know a payment system that's a little more efficient in terms of time, right? So what you've seen is that in the earlier days, if you look at what was going on five years ago, there were a lot of crypto startup projects that were focused more on the consumer to the consumer payment space. And I think there's sort of been a realization again, because like the existing payment systems, if you're doing consumer to consumer, like if I want to send you money electronically, we both have PayPal accounts. That issue is solved. That's free. PayPal assets are pretty fungible. You can convert them easily into credit in your bank account or put them on cards or, or whatever. So that's not really where the weak point is, but well, it's, I don't have a PayPal account. <laughs> <laughs> At least not one that I know how to use. Right. Okay. But if you wanted to send money quickly to someone and not pay fees, PayPal, I will admit, is like a, a decent solution, right? But uh, there is, I think, a lot of vulnerability on the, on the merchant side. So Bitcoin is a tool for that. Again, it's not going to be Bitcoin. You're not going to use Bitcoin to make settlements between businesses. But there's been a recent innovation in crypto called stable coins or tokenized cash, which I think is an extremely, extremely important innovation. And it really has massive implications for payments and for actually just a whole alternative finance system. Yeah, I was sort of with my Amazon system. I think I was trying to duplicate stable coin. Right. I think it would be perfectly reasonable for Amazon to actually develop a stable coin. Now, the barriers to entry are not great, but these things definitely have a lot of very interesting use cases. Let me just try to describe what a stable coin is, because I don't know if a lot of people know about their existence yet. If you look at the crypto market today, there's a little over 30 billion of these stable coins. What a stable coin does is basically pegs, usually to the US dollar. In theory, these things are all exchangeable one for one for a US dollar. So, you know, while something like Bitcoin moves all over the place, Ethereum, all these other cryptos are extremely volatile. These stable coins peg to the dollar. And in a lot of cases, they have very minimal tracking error. So on a given day, if you're just looking at their value on an exchange and what they would sell in their USD for, on exchange, it's like a tenth of a cent in most cases, tracking error. And all of them have some sort of mechanism that, you know, if you want to destroy your coin and actually turn it back into fiat, the issuers have a mechanism that allows you to do that. So there are mechanisms to try to ensure that the peg is capped. But, you know, all these stable coins that exist on a blockchain, so they have all the advantages of a blockchain in terms of you know, I can move a stable coin to you, to your address. That transaction is verified by a decentralized network that is using cryptography to ensure that both the sender and the receiver are engaged in a valid transaction. There's no centralized authority that is necessary to assure that that transaction is valid. And, you know, in essence, the function of this trustless network is the innovation that 
in the long term, I think, drives out a lot of the costs of having to have these centralized human institutions to serve that function of validating and authenticating a transaction. You know, in theory, these networks, they kind of automate trust. Right. Presumably in my example, that was what Amazon was doing internally. It really is peer-to-peer and a system is checking that they match. See, the problem though with a centralized thing like that, it's, there's different flavors of stablecoin, which I think it's a little important to get into this a bit. Uh, and I'll, I'll circle back to you know Amazon running their own potentially, right? But so if you look at the space of stablecoins, there's a few major players. So the biggest by far is this project called Tether, and it's based in Hong Kong, and it's a centralized stablecoin which has definite negatives. You know this particular stablecoin, they will accept USD fiat and they will issue you coins. Similarly, you can take Tether coins, put it back to them, they will destroy the coins and remit in USD. But because it's a centralized stablecoin, there is a leap of faith there. Like, do we really know that every Tether is backed by a single US dollar like they claim? And in fact, Tether really concerns me. I think it might be an accident waiting to happen. I'm not sure it's a Ponzi scheme, but I mean, they basically admitted that, well, no, it's not backed one-to-one completely by U.S. dollars, but we have you know loans and other assets that over-collateralize every coin. But you know, at the end of the day, you're kind of trusting this centralized authority again not to screw it up. You know, I almost think of them as being kind of like this small crypto central bank, you know, that's trying to maintain a peg and you just hope that they have enough hard assets in their organization to do that. But there's a newer generation of stablecoins that I think are much more solid and transparent and much more trustworthy. There's a project called MakerDAO, which issues a coin called DAI, which is a smart contract where it's completely transparent. You can see the assets that back that coin. They take uh, deposits in Ethereum and other cryptocurrencies. And there's smart contracts that automatically create and destroy these coins and manage the collateral in a way that you're basically guaranteed not to break the dollar bound and have a coin that's under collateralized. So I think that's probably going to be the future of stablecoin. I think these centralized ones and Amazon could try one too, but at the end of the day, the weak link is actually having to trust a centralized authority to maintain that peg. But again, you're just sort of using the concept of a decentralized trustless network to hopefully ensure that that can happen. So I think what you're going to see over time is that stable coins like DAI that are you know completely open source and transparent are probably going to come to the forefront and really dominate the stable coin space. So here's the question. If stable coin takes off, it becomes the principal medium of exchange in the world. What does that do to Bitcoin value? So I still think that there's a place for Bitcoin in that world because I really view Bitcoin as being digital gold. You know, it's sort of a shared collective illusion. Right? Like <laughs> you can say that about lots of stores of value potentially, but it sort of satisfies most of the criteria for a store of value, I think. You know, it's immutable, it's durable, it's scarce. And, you know, it has a legitimate network effect. Like it's worth something because, you know, a growing community of people thinks it's worth something. And its use case is way different than a stablecoin's use case. With stablecoins, the role they now play in the actual cryptocurrency space, it used to be in the early days, if you wanted to trade Bitcoin, you're always using USD. 
to buy Bitcoin, you would have to deposit fiat in a, an exchange and use the fiat to buy Bitcoin. In the early days, pretty much any exchange had to accept USD. That was kind of the on-ramp, right? But the problem with fiat is that it's a paper-based system. To move fiat around, especially you know internationally, okay, well, now I have to use SWIFT transfers, correspondent banks. It take a long time to move USD from one exchange to another. It's very cumbersome and can be a little expensive. So stable coins were first invented really just to make the transfer of assets between exchanges a lot easier and to make the purchase of different altcoins a lot easier. So if you look at where the crypto space is now, a vast majority of cryptocurrencies are just bought with stable coins. There's something like 70-80% of all transactions on exchanges now are with coins slash stablecoin pairs. Arbitrageurs use stablecoins all the time because it's the most efficient way to move assets around between exchanges. So you know, if Bitcoin trades a little higher here than exchange A versus exchange B, they'll sell bit on one exchange into USDT, move it to another. And a lot of the crypto that's moving around between exchanges is this pseudo fiat stablecoin stuff. And so in some ways, actual fiat money has become a bit of a bit player now in terms of the actual trading activity that occurs. But just to move back to payments, because stable coins have become much more ubiquitous, they've run like sixfold in the last year. So, you know, start of 2020, if you looked at the entire stable coin space, it was about like 5 billion in terms of total capitalization. As of yesterday, it's more like 30. So these things are just growing tremendously, okay? You're starting to see some very interesting projects which are trying to extend stablecoins outside of the immediate cryptocurrency environment and into commercial banking. Okay, so there's an interesting project called Circle. It's a private company in Boston. They've been around for about five or six years. They started out trying to do more consumer-to-consumer type payment models. But for the reasons that we've talked about already, the C2C problem isn't really a pressing problem. But you are seeing more projects pivot to this B2B space where I think there are real vulnerabilities. Circle has this platform now where you can link a Circle account to a commercial account. It's called payment as a service model. The way Circle monetizes this, they build everything on the USDC stablecoin, which is a stablecoin minted by Coinbase. And unlike Tether, that one's audited pretty closely. You know, in terms of a centralized stablecoin, it's probably best in class. You can convert for free money in your commercial bank account to a USDC account in the Circle platform. And vice versa, you can move that back fee-free. You can transact with any counterparty that has a similar account for zero cost. So you can basically make unlimited transfers between anybody on that platform if it's in USDC, but it also provides on-ramps to the existing payment systems. If you want to send or receive using a corporate credit card or a wire, ACH, that's all integrated in. You know, at first, there's probably not tremendous value because you have to build out that network. You have to get a lot of your customers and vendors on the same system. But as a network like that grows, there's just more and more incentive rather than transact in dollars, just transact in USDC. I don't think this happens immediately, but I think over time, you know, if you can get a critical mass of people on a system like this, the value proposition really starts to play out because rather than have, you know, a human-based banking system validating all these transactions, you've just eliminated a huge cost layer 
by having a blockchain do it for you. You know, the Circle's not the only one. There's you know several other projects. Paystand is another one. They don't even use stable coins. They're based on Ethereum, but they, again, sort of a monthly payment. They transact directly between commercial bank accounts. And for your monthly fee, they're basically handling the conversion from fiat to the blockchain back to fiat. But I think this is the way that crypto is really going to start to penetrate into mainstream economic activity. And the funny thing is, is that the people that will use this stuff, you know, they're not really going to have to know or even care too much that they're using a blockchain. In some ways, it's transparent, right? So the first generation concepts where people were going to have to interact directly with the Bitcoin chain and understand blockchains and around with all these 36 character addresses that's not the way that this stuff's going to work there's a whole ecosystem that's being built on top of this that is way more user friendly and the end users are not even really aware of the technology that undergirds it all and you know it'll just be as easy as using a paypal account to transfer money to somebody but it's on the business side the other interesting thing with regards to stable coins being used as a payment solution is that you're starting to see the U.S. government get the light on this. So I don't know if you saw this, but this actually has implications for Park State, Andy. So the commissioner of the OCC, the Office of the Controller of the Currency, which is part of the U.S. Treasury Department, just submitted a opinion letter two weeks ago, basically blessing banks to have stable coins on their balance sheets to be able to custody these currencies for their customers and to use them in transactions. And then you've also had Biden's appointees, and for the most part, they look fairly crypto friendly and sophisticated. So the new OCC chair is this person, Michael Barr, who was a director at Ripple, which is another crypto project that's focused mainly on payment settlements. So he should be somewhat knowledgeable and sophisticated about how tokenized cash might benefit the financial system in general. And then you have Gary Gensler is going to be the chair of the SEC. He was a CFTC guy, very knowledgeable about cryptocurrencies, taught courses on cryptocurrencies at MIT. So this is an intelligent person when it comes to crypto. And I think he sort of understands the nuances between what, what is Bitcoin supposed to be, what is Ethereum, what is a stable coin, and how might tokenized cash and longer down the road, even like central bank digital currencies provide benefit to the global financial system. So I think the, one of the biggest concerns that crypto investors have is why aren't central banks and regulators going to shut all this down? That's a very legitimate concern. And it's not something that I think most crypto investors should take lightly. To me, it's the biggest risk that space faces. I hope and I think that at the end of the day, regulators are going to see for all the bad things about crypto, the criminal activity, money laundering, ransomware, all that stuff. There is a core concept here which has the promise to unlock massive value for humans if employed in the right way. And I think over time, I hope we get it right. I think we probably will get it right. I think that you know there will be much more regulatory infrastructure built up around this over time. And at the end of the day, crypto is here to stay in some way, shape or form, but we're probably gonna have many ups and downs before this really you know gets to where it's going. You know, when I look at crypto, I feel like there's parallels to the early 90s and the internet. 
right? Like we're trying to figure out what all this stuff is, what it's going to do. But if you really try to go forward with the potential of this stuff, you know, projects like Ethereum are really interesting. You can make cases that this is a fundamentally paradigm changing thing where things like Ethereum could eventually become an economic internet for the world where blockchains undergrade most of the confirmation and authorization of the transference of economic value in all sorts of different ways and probably a lot of ways that we can't fully appreciate yet. One of the things I think is sort of interesting is if the language changed, if you stopped sort of talking about cryptocurrency or maybe even blockchain because blockchain is so associated bitcoin but language sort of mirrors the underlying which is just a decentralized encrypted general ledger yes i think that's true i think that in some ways the language that we started out with is kind of an impediment to people really grasping the real role and value of this longer term like currency is really just sort of the tip of the iceberg right it's a potential use case for decentralized autonomous organizations to fill but the potential for distributed ledger technology and and decentralized autonomous organizations is, is really much greater than that and that's the thing that i think the vast majority of people don't really get yet or you know been exposed to but pretty much anywhere where there's some centralized authority that's kind of an arbiter of truth and notarizes transactions between people or entities or audits things or whatever. I think there's probably a role for this technology to you know, dislocate and or improve. And I think it's really hard for us to sort of foresee how is this really going to evolve over the next 20 to 30 years. I think like the internet like, is sort of at that level of the types of things that it could impact and change. I think this technology has the ability to really change the way a human economy works. Well, I wonder, I mean, previously we talked a little bit about stock settlements the other day, and that is kind of an obvious use for an encrypted general ledger and a mechanism for secure transfers, even though maybe this isn't going anywhere. I mean, tracking who owns what shares of Microsoft is completely independent of their dollar value. Any case where human beings have to track stuff on a spreadsheet or database, at the end of the day, even though a lot of it's automated to an extent, it still takes an organization like DTC to employ a bunch of people to ensure, does this guy have enough cash in his brokerage account to cover this? We have to track the movement of this equity from here to here, this cash from here to here. There's several layers of bureaucracy that have to make sure that this all runs correctly. There are projects, I told you about Paxos. So this is actually a enterprise blockchain solution. It's not running on a public blockchain, but it tries to use a lot of the same principles of a public blockchain just to speed up the authentication process and the settlement process. But a lot of this is sort of chicken and egg, right? So it's one thing to tokenize stocks. It's another thing to tokenize cash. Stock settlement, I think, almost becomes trivial if you can tokenize both. So one general trend I think there's going to be in the next decade or so is just this idea of tokenizing everything. Because the power of this technology really grows exponentially with the amount of things that you can tokenize. You know, just tokenizing equity is an improvement. It'll speed up settlement. And, you know, the trials with Paxos suggest it does that. They've been able to sell things, you know, within several minutes, in some cases, in their pilots. But the real killer app is when you tokenize cash and tokenize equity. Because if you have both those things tokenized, if you have cash that's tokenized in a bank account or a prime broker's account, and you have the security tokenized, then you're talking almost like instantaneous settlement. It's incredibly powerful.
you know, the value of all this technology really grows exponentially with the number of things that are tokenized and the size of these networks. And so we're just making beachheads right now. This is all going to take a lot of time, but I think 10 or 20 years from now, it'll have the same sort of impact that the internet has had on society, I think. I think that's the scope of this technology. It's really exciting when you think about the potential of it. One last question, and then I think we can close. And I want to harken back to your comment about Bitcoin as digitized gold and you know it having kind of an intrinsic value because people think it has intrinsic value. Classically, throughout history, when we were on a gold standard, you had inflationary booms and you had deflationary busts. You had price stability on a long time scale. You had inflation and deflation on a short time scale, a kind of a function of credit. It would seem to me you should get that. Bitcoin could suffer sort of the same fate, but you can't actually grab it the way you can grab gold. Right. But really, though, I think it's really hard, other than being tangible and being able to touch it, (laughs) I think they're more or less the same thing. You know, conceptually, I know that gold has, you know, this aspect of it. Well, you can use it for jewelry and make pretty things with it. But that's not really what drives the value of gold. When you look at what is gold used for, is it even 10% of gold that's used for those purposes? It's just something that is immutable, scarce, that can sit in a warehouse and do nothing except be gold. When I think about the analogs, like that is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is just digital idea. Right, right. It's immutable. It's durable. It's scarce. And, and in the long run, I think it just serves the same function because there's enough people that have bought into that idea. The longer that it stays around, the more I think that concept will just be accepted as fact. All right. I think that's a good thought to end on. Thank you very much for doing this. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Maybe if we get some feedback and some follow-up questions, we'll reconvene. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Ask Andy. If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.